Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Greetings to everyone in podcast land. It's a pleasure to be with you once more. And August is already upon us. It's crazy how fast the summer has gone. The semester at Shepherd Seminary is starting next week. A week from today, actually, when I'm doing this recording, I will be teaching the first class of the semester. So really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a great semester. Really looking forward to what God's going to do. Uh, at the school, in the students' lives, in my own life, as we continue to learn and grow. It's just a huge blessing to be able to be a part of that. Well, today on the podcast, I wanted to continue with what we had done last time. Last time, we talked about the kingdom of God, what it is, when it is, kind of the expectations of the kingdom as formulated in Scripture. But as any astute student would understand, There are tough passages which don't readily fit into the presentation that I gave. Now, I thought I did a, I guess how we could say, smashing job of presenting the Old Testament, New Testament, how it goes together, how there's an expectation of a real physical kingdom that's waiting on the repentance of Israel in order to be instituted. Both the Old Testament and New Testament seem to speak of this literal real kingdom for people of Israel with Christ ruling from Jerusalem at a real time. So that seems to be a natural expectation. But admittedly, there are difficult passages in the Bible that seem to draw question marks around that. And I think it's important to acknowledge no matter pretty much no matter what view you're talking about or theological subject you're talking about there are passages that are difficult. Otherwise, everyone would all believe the same thing and it wouldn't even be a question, right? So the issue is working through those difficult passages, those tough passages, and seeing if they actually correlate or correspond well to your viewpoint. And so I'm going to present some passages that are tough passages, passages that might be difficult to square initially with the idea of a physical kingdom. But I think at the end of it, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to say, well, yeah, it's actually not that difficult to square those passages with the idea of a physical real kingdom. So that's the plan today is to go through some of the objectionable passages and just talk about how I think they can be understood with the major background of the Old Testament in in our mind. Uh, we don't need to have any kind of major reversal or change in thought process. These passages can understand that. So the first thing to go through would be the book of Matthew. We talked a lot about the book of Matthew and the presentation of the kingdom from Matthew 19, uh, Matthew 25, etc. So there is obviously a lot, just straightforward, simple understanding. Matthew has a lot about the kingdom. Now there are some passages in Matthew 3, 2, for example, with John the Baptist, and he proclaimed to the people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so the kingdom is at hand. What does that mean? That's that's really the issue. Similarly, Jesus was introduced in Matthew 3, and then in Matthew 4, in his ministry, he begins to preach, and in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And then similarly, Jesus commissions his disciples and has them go out and proclaim the message in Matthew 10, verse 7. They were to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you have this this sequence in Matthew, the early chapters of Matthew, all the way to the middle of the book, where John the Baptist, Jesus, and Jesus' followers, his disciples, are all proclaiming this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's, it's here, is how a lot of people would understand that. And so, how are we to understand that? Well, I would say we need to go even further because there's one more passage in Matthew 12 which really kind of draws this to to a culminating point because in Matthew 12, no matter who you are, you recognize Matthew 12 is a major, major turning point in the book of Matthew because you have the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, not just rejecting Jesus, but even attributing what he is doing to the works of Satan. So this takes place when Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man, and everyone's amazed, and they're saying in verse 23 of chapter 12, can this be the son of David? So in other words, can this be the one on whom all of our messianic expectations uh, should be placed? And in verse 24, the Pharisees say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. So in other words, they completely reject Christ, they attribute his work, the work of the Spirit, to Satan. And so Jesus talks with them saying that doesn't make sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That would be the destruction of Satan's kingdom. And in verse 28, Jesus responds and says, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so a lot of people will take that verse and they'll say, well, there you have it. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come upon you and it's present now. So that's how we need to understand that. And granted, I guess in a a sort of superficial way, uh, it could be understood that way. But I, again, we talked a little bit last time about how the book of Matthew ultimately culminates uh, even after this in, in Matthew 12. There's very clear expectation that the kingdom still is future. So it would be pretty uh, difficult for us to just take Matthew 12 out of the context of the whole book, especially when Matthew 19, Matthew 25 seems to indicate, you know, this future, future expectation of the kingdom and just say, well, obviously everyone understood it as being present. But how, how can we describe this, this idea of the kingdom being at hand or the kingdom being present in that situation? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's easiest to understand this as understanding the kingdom had come upon them; it was present through the demonstrations of judgment upon evil. Uh, Isaiah twenty four talks about that. Jesus's healing ministry. Isaiah also talks about that, like Isaiah thirty two and Isaiah thirty five, where um, the messianic uh, age was to be noted and marked by these this healing this rejuvenation and so christ was essentially telling them that in my person being here i am representing you know what the kingdom stands for i am i'm healing i'm delivering from evil all of these things are are present so how can you come face to face with the representation of the kingdom i'm the kingdom is at the door, as it were. The Messiah is here showing you the power of the kingdom, and you're rejecting it. That's ultimately the message. 
And what's really interesting, I haven't seen very many people observe this, uh, but I think it's a helpful thing to observe, is that from this point on, the kingdom is not described as near or at hand. So from Matthew 12 on, it's obvious that the Jews had rejected the kingdom, and so no longer is it presented as being at hand or near, but the expectation is that, okay, because you've rejected uh, in the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, uh, the kingdom will be given to a, a people worthy of it, a future generation. Now, in a similar sense to this sequence that Matthew's showing us, where the kingdom is no longer said to be near, in the book of Luke, we are actually told that the kingdom of God will be near in the future. So, for example, in Luke 21, verse 31, Uh, Jesus says, when you see all these things taking place, i.e. the events uh, of the tribulation, which is being described in Luke 21, we also see that mentioned in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says, when you see all these things, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So if we put those things together, it seems that the kingdom was near in the person of Christ. He was representing the kingdom, offering the kingdom in a genuine way to the people of Israel, and they were rejecting that. And so at that point, the kingdom offer is withdrawn um, until the people repent. The, The generation of Israel repents, and like we mentioned last time, that would coincide with all of Israel being saved, Uh, in accordance with Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, uh, in accordance with Hosea 3. That's the expectation now, is that we expect Israel to repent, and then the kingdom will be instituted in the words of Peter, the times of uh, restoration might come for you in, in Acts 3. So that would be the understanding, is the kingdom is presented as near, being upon the people itself, in the person of Christ, in a true offer of the kingdom, which is then rejected, and so... Then Luke 21.31 says, well, the kingdom will be near again in the future when you see the final oppression coming upon the world. And so I think that that's a very simple way to understand how Matthew presents it. I don't think that is as difficult. It's, it's definitely brought up, but I don't think that passage is as difficult. Probably a more difficult passage in the Gospels would actually be Luke 17 verses 20 and 21. It's similar, but there is there is a slight difference. So Luke seventeen twenty to twenty one says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, "The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you." Now I'm reading from the ESV there. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. There have been a variety of ways to interpret this phrase, uh, and we'll go kind of reverse order here in understanding this. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you? Some people would take that and say, well, that means that the kingdom of God is within you, and so it's a spiritual aspect. The, the kingdom is spiritual. It's something that's within you, a spiritual identity. It's not a physical reality. It's just talking about something that's, that's within you. That's one view that's quite popular. The other one would be, uh, you could translate this this phrase, the kingdom of God is in your midst, and that's how the ESV and many other English translations translate it that way, and we'll talk about why that is in a second. Or you could also translate it a third way, which is within reach. So the kingdom of God is within your reach or within your grasp. Now, interestingly, I should 
put this out there that um, in the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, uh, which is uh, put out by Elwell and Philip Comfort, Walter Elwell and Philip Comfort, they actually talk about this phrase and they talk about how one of the interesting things about the 20th century is you've seen just a lot of textual evidence come forward. You've had the Chester Betty Papyra, the Bodmere Papyri, you've had the Dead Sea Scrolls, all these things help us understand uh, biblical languages. And in Koine Greek and some of the papyri, we have this Greek phrase here, the entos humon is how you say it in Greek. That's the within you phrase. And um, what Elwell says in the Tyndale Bible Dictionary is that within the papyri, you often have this phrase meaning within your reach. And so he says Luke seventeen twenty one could easily mean the kingdom is within reach at that point. I. Howard Marshall, who's a famous New Testament scholar, also says pretty much the same thing. He says Jesus is speaking of the presence of the kingdom of God among men, possibly as something within their grasp if they will only take hold of it. So that's definitely a, a possible understanding of this, a way to translate this Greek phrase, which isn't super common. But you could also have the idea of in your midst, which is how a lot of the English translations would would take it because that would be very similar to what we see in the Gospel of Matthew, for example. Uh, what we just talked about, it would be a similar nuance there. And, yeah, it, it, would, it would match well with that. Now, so with that in mind, it's, it's more likely that it would be translated in your midst or at hand within your grasp. That would be a better understanding, because if, we, if you were understanding it as within you, which could be a legitimate way to take it, there's, a, there's an immediate problem because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. So why would Jesus say to a bunch of unsaved people, the kingdom of God is within you, it's in your heart or whatever. It sounds like some Disney song or something. It's very unlikely that Jesus would uh, tell them, oh, you know what, the kingdom of God is in your heart. All you need to do is look in there and find it and you're, you're, you're there. No, that's... I don't, I don't buy that. I don't think that that's how he would talk to the Pharisees who are unsaved, and not just unsaved, but false teachers and leading people astray. Uh, don't, you can't read Matthew 23 and his woes against the Pharisees and come away with anything uh, positive about, about them. So that's, uh, I think, a big strike against the, the first view with the kingdom of God is within you. I don't think we can, we can translate it that way. The second reason here, and by the way, I should, I should reference that... Um, Mike Vlock, I've mentioned my just um, appreciation for him in the past, and he has a book on the kingdom of God uh, entitled He Will Reign Forever, which is his biblical theology of the kingdom of God. He Will Reign Forever. Just a fa- just fascinating, great book. I, I actually was reading some of his sections just the other day, and, and a lot of this material even, I've been heavily influenced by him, so I uh, just really indebted to him with regard to that. And I encourage you, if you're more interested in this, look up his book on that. I, I think it's, it's really good. Uh, and the reason I mentioned that was because I, I'm reminded of the fact that he points out in his discussion on this that later in Luke, so if we're dealing in Luke 17 here, later in Luke, it's obvious that the kingdom is expected to be a, a physical reality. We had just mentioned in the prior section when we're talking about Matthew, how Luke 21, 31 talks about the kingdom of God being near in the future. 
So either Luke is contradicting himself or he's talking about the kingdom of God being at hand, similar to Matthew. And Luke 19 is similar as well. We mentioned that in the introduction of the first part. Uh, In the first, I guess the previous episode, I should say, we mentioned uh, Luke 19, how Jesus says the, the king needed to go away to receive the kingdom and come back. So in Luke 19, Luke 21, there's obviously an expectation of a physical kingdom there as well. So either there's a contradiction, the kingdom is coming in the future later in Luke, but here the kingdom is present in your heart, or uh, you can understand this very simply as saying the kingdom of God is in your midst or the kingdom of God is within your grasp. If you will only repent, the kingdom can be instituted. So it, it makes most sense to view it that way. Now, another thing about this passage as well is why does Jesus say that the kingdom of God is coming in ways that cannot be observed? Uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting uh, phrase, especially because elsewhere in Scripture it seems to be that, that Christ says, look for these signs. In fact, uh, in Luke 17 here, Jesus says, essentially, don't look for signs. It, it's not going to come with something that can be observed. But, like we already talked about in Luke 21, 31, Jesus says that when these things happen, in other words, when these signs take place, then the kingdom of God is near. So in other words, Luke 17 says, don't look for signs. Luke 21, 31 says, look for these signs, and then you know the kingdom is near. So I think that's a very important point to recognize is that something happens in between here, and what I would argue is that you have the rejection of Christ as the Messiah, as we've seen throughout the Gospels, and so ultimately the kingdom is put Uh, at a later date for a repentant generation of Israel. I think that's the best way to think about it. So when we understand this phrase, the kingdom is not coming um, with observation, it could mean that the kingdom is going to come super fast. Uh, You won't be able to, you know, recognize because when it's coming, because it's just going to come so quickly, that's possible, but it's probably, again, similar to what we were talking about with Matthew, just a I, idea that Jesus is a physical representative of the kingdom him, himself as the, as the ruler of the kingdom, the rightful ruler. While he is here, he is healing the people, he is, he is opening the eyes of the blind, uh, banishing sickness where he, where he is, uh, he's, he's just demonstrating his, his power, his prowess, the kingdom manifestation. So in other words, um, he's basically saying, you know, it's not, going to, it's not going to come. The kingdom doesn't come with these massive uh, demonstrations of, you know, parting the Red Sea or whatever. It's, it's here uh, in the person of Christ. Um, and then later on uh, in Luke 21, it, he would say, uh, obviously, since the king is no longer here, look for these signs because then you know the king and the kingdom will return, um, will come back at that time. And so that seems to be uh, a, a acceptable and very uh, plausible interpretation of this passage. Granted, I think in my mind this is one of the more difficult passages because you have a phrase, a Greek phrase that could be uh, translated within you, yet as as I explained, it, it just doesn't seem possible that we should translate it as within you, uh, even though some translations have done that before. Uh, it, seems, it seems that it needs to be translated within the context of Luke, within the theological context of, obviously, unbelievers do not have the kingdom present within their hearts, and so we would understand it that way. 
Now, we move on to the epistles, and there are two other passages we'll add to our tough passages of the kingdom list. That's Romans 14.17 and Colossians 1.13-14. So in Romans 14.17, we're told that uh, by the Apostle Paul, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, uh, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, right away when we first read that, it seems to just say, if we just took it out of context and just plucked that verse out, uh, it would say, well, listen, eating and drinking don't have a place in the kingdom, but righteousness, peace, and joy do. So in other words, it's just a spiritual reality. Now, we need to remember context is king, right? So if we went through Romans 14, obviously the issue in Romans 14 is the issue of eating and drinking and Christian liberty and what kind of things can we eat and drink and how should we interact with other believers. And so when Paul is saying here the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, peace, and tr- peace and joy, he's making a qualitative statement. In fact, it would be incorrect to say there's no eating or drinking in the kingdom because we know from other passages that there is eating and drinking. For example, Luke 22:18 is a prominent one. Uh, Jesus himself told the disciples there, uh, I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the implication would be that I will drink of the fruit of the vine when the kingdom is there. I will do that with you. Similarly, we have Romans 8, 19, and 23 where we're... Uh, told in no uncertain terms that creation itself longs to be glorified or redeemed, uh, meaning that there's a physicality uh, within the kingdom that creation itself even longs for. Uh, and also another point uh, being, in, as we see in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a big deal about our resurrection being so important. And the reason is because the, the resurrected body is what has the, has the place in the kingdom. Our spiritual existence, our spirit, our soul, uh, that's not the, the, the priority, surprisingly. The priority is our resurrected body because the kingdom is a physical place. And so our bodies, our resurrected bodies, uh, are, to, are to be in existence to participate in that kingdom. So I would just say Romans 14, 17 isn't an ontological statement about the nature of the kingdom. It's not saying, for example, the kingdom is only spiritual, but rather it's, it's making a statement about spiritual priority or quality within the kingdom. Uh, so, so, for example, within the context of Romans 14, he's saying, listen, the most important things in your life are not eating and drinking. In other words, you know, if, if you're going to eat something and you're going to cause... Uh, your brother to stumble, or in the words of Romans fourteen twenty, um, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So, in other words, you don't you don't hurt your brothers, you don't destroy what God is doing just for the sake of having a donut or something like that, right? You don't do that. That's just uh, insane. That's that's the wrong mindset for a Christian. For a Christian, we are to have the mindset of kingdom citizens, which involve righteousness, peace, and joy. Those are those are the qualities which are essential to those who are kingdom citizens. So it's stressing that. And in that case, it would be very similar to the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, obviously, um, the, the quality of being poor in spirit is a present reality. It's to be a present reality in our lives. 
the the kingdom is a later reality if if what I'm presenting is true. But it's saying as a as somebody who will inherit the kingdom, as somebody who is going to be a part of the kingdom, this is the characteristic that needs to exemplify your life, being poor in spirit, having that humility, that poverty of spirit. So similarly, Romans 14 would uh, would come across that way. Again, we have Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, many will argue from this passage that this is talking about a present existence of the kingdom. So in other words, we are presently a part of the kingdom of the son. The kingdom is here, the kingdom is now, and we are we have been a part of that kingdom uh, when we were saved. We're put in that kingdom, which is currently in existence. That's how it's typically described. And in Greek, we have here um, what are known as aorist tenses. And aorist tenses are typically thought to describe past action. Uh, so, in other words, we've been in the past transferred into this kingdom presently. Uh, that's typically how it's described. But that's a that's a bit of a weak argument because in Greek tense is more derived from context rather than the tense form, which is much different than English. In English, the form of the word itself communicates the tense, but in Greek that's not always the case. You can have uh, aorist forms being used for future events. You can have present forms being utilized for past events. That's that's just how Greek Greek has a flexibility that English doesn't. With regard to that, uh, Romans 8.30 is is interesting on that point, uh, which anytime somebody preaches through Romans 8.30, they talk about this. You have a bunch of aorist verbs stacked together, but there are at least, there's at least one element, maybe two, which is talking about a future reality. So Romans 8.30 says, um, those whom he foreknew... He, these, he also called. So those whom he, he predestined, those who he uh, predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. Now the question is whether that justification is present or future. Uh, either, either could be a valid interpretation there. Um, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So all of those are aorist tenses. But everyone is in agreement that the glorification is a future event. Uh, so, but you have aorist tenses being utilized to communicate a future event. So, all that to say is that the the tense itself does not mean that this was a past action. Um, the translation there assumes that. Uh, so, so we we would understand that. Furthermore, I would say that if you look at the previous verse in Colossians one twelve. It seems that the context is actually looking ahead to the inheritance of the saints. Uh, Paul writes, I guess it would be good to, uh, to get the context in verse 11. He, he's praying and saying, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. That word, the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, inheritance is typically an eschatological term in Paul and Peter 
And so the context would seem to be an ex, a future expectation. And then in verse 13, he talks about that. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So that connection, I would argue, uh, has no problem being eschatological. Granted, it could also, because of the flexibility of Greek tenses, be talking about a present reality. But again, I'm happy to allow the Old Testament context and the expectation of a kingdom to inform my understanding here. And furthermore, this is typically how Paul talks. I mean, the way I, the way I like to illustrate it or think through it is that you can be a kingdom or you can be a citizen of a country or a kingdom without actually living there or being a part of it at that moment. Uh, I can be a American citizen while traveling in Europe, and I'm not actually a part of that kingdom at that moment. I'm actually a part of associating with, socializing with, whatever country in Europe I'm a part of. And so we understand that. And Paul brings out that point in Philippians 3, 20 to 21, when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, what he's saying is our citizenship is in heaven. We're not there. We're not in heaven. We await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come back. And he, and in verse 21, he says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So in other words, Paul, even in other places, talks about having a citizenship uh, in heaven, which is not in this world. Um, it, it awaits a future time, which coincides with the Savior returning. And so I would say that that, that fits just fine with Colossians 1 here. The idea of being transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom, uh, that doesn't mean the kingdom is here now. It just means that we have that citizenship for the coming kingdom. And I think that that's a perfect way to understand this. It's it's not, not a problem at all. So we go through this. Obviously, uh, these passages do present some problems. And like I said, I think it's really important to be honest and say, you know, these these are things that need to be worked through. And part of it is presuppositional, because if you were to take these passages and say, oh, clearly this talks about a present kingdom, which has a spiritual reality, and then go back and try to interpret all the Old Testament and uh, some of the New Testament passages through this lens, you would get to a different place. But I think that if you already have the kingdom program in your mind from the Old Testament, and then you get to the New Testament, these passages don't contradict that. They can be interpreted in the light of that program, that paradigm, which is why it's, I think, the way that God revealed Scripture is how we need to interpret Scripture. Uh, in other words, uh, chronologically, you, you understand the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. I mean, that, that's a really important process. That's sensical, it's logical, it fits with the way people communicate, and that would make most sense. So I bring that up for consideration. Um, I think we might be able to have more on the kingdom of God at a future time, but I have some more episodes in the works uh, that I'm planning on doing, so we'll focus on those in the near future. So anyway, I hope it's helpful. I always look forward to hearing from you. And uh, like I said, the seminary is starting next week, so if you wanted to audit a class or take a class, you better get in there soon because it's about to start. So. Uh, you can visit shepherds.edu for more information on that. 
You can always visit my website, reach out to me through the contact form on the website, uh, and I'm happy to get back to you. I am way behind on getting back to some people who have reached out, so please excuse my absence from that, but I've been um, super busy uh, getting ready for the semester and whatnot. So in any case, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Thank you.